This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. You're listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. I am one of your hosts, Clark Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind, and I'm joined by Swatha Nanda Kumar, ACB Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. And thank you to everyone listening on the ACB Media Network as well as those who are downloading, streaming, listening via your favorite podcast player to the Advocacy Update. We are very excited uh, to be here with you today, but also to put in a plug for the ACB uh, Leadership Conference coming up March 12th to 15th. Registration is now open, uh, $20 for ACB members, $30 for everyone else. And we hope that you'll be able to join us. We have a packed schedule of two days of legislative programming that Swatha and I are pulling together. Um, but the, the beat goes on, right, Swatha? That's not the only thing we're doing. And that's why we have this podcast here today. Yeah. So today, since February is Black History Month, we thought we'd do a little uh, episode on that and on um EIA in general. So um, today we have Cheryl Cummings from the chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee. And we have Reverend Ray Razor from the president of the Washington, D.C. Council of the Blind. Hey, guys, how's it going? Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You guys want to say anything in your in your on the fence or like introduce yourself? Introduce yourself. No, I think well, like I, I'm the uh, I've been I was elected uh, only six months ago in September 2021, uh, and this is my first term as president for the DC Council of the Blind, and looking forward to rebranding DC. And Reverend Ray, what keeps you busy outside of your work with ACB? What keeps me busy? Uh, well, I work for a Prince George's councilman, uh, Mr. Calvin Hawkins II. I am the um, I am the uh, constituent service uh, liaison, and my concentration is on persons with disabilities and seniors. I also host and produce two radio shows a week, one called CAG Do About Your Dog and You, one called Sight and Vision Disability Senior Talk Radio Show. I also do a once a month TV show called Disability Awareness. I am the president of at least four different organizations. I'm also on the the uh, Prince George County uh, NAACP. I am the uh, ADA uh, coordinator uh, for that, and I do a few of it. And also, uh, I'm also the manager in in music directing keyboardist for a group called Men of Praise. Uh, also on the ministerial staff for Word of God Community Church in Bladensburg. I also have 
recently started a blind men's uh, support group that we meet once a week and talk about things concerning men, especially black blind men in the section. And I also started a ministry that I pastor called uh, Disability uh, Inclusion Ministry, where we deal with wraparound services. So a person with a disability cannot get independent living or rehabilitation mm-hmm. from the different, uh, the different government groups, then we will take on that. And, uh, and we have a fund to help persons, like somebody called me yesterday, and uh, they were working for Columbia Lighthouse with a blind, and they needed a magnifying glass. So the time it took, you know, to go through whatever to get that. So we were able just to say, hey, go ahead and, and buy them one. So those are a couple of things I do other than I was married, and I just celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary uh, Monday. So... Other than that, I, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just, I'm just a layabout. <laughs> yeah, in all your spare time. Cheryl, you want to go ahead? Sure. So like Reverend Ray, I too am new in my position as chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee. I started in September of 2021. And prior to that, I was a member of the Multicultural Affairs Committee. Um, let's see, what else am I doing? Uh, outside of ACB, um, I, you know, I'm a member of the Bay State Council of the Blind and the second vice president and the chair of their membership committee. Um, I also am the chair of uh, the board of a cross-disability organization called the Disability Policy Consortium. So they do work around Mm -hmm. our um, uh, Medicaid services Mm -hmm. for people with disabilities, Mm -hmm. and they do research concerning the lives of people with disabilities. Uh, And I'm also uh, co-chair of the Disability Outreach Committee for our state uh, Democratic Party. So, and I suppose my my professional work is um, I I started and I run a small nonprofit, and we do primarily after school and career exploration programs for middle and high school age students who are blind and low vision, and we're also beginning to expand and to do some work with adults. So one of the things we've been offering is, uh, I think you guys might have seen this, the Ask an AT Expert, where we um, invite people in to come virtually and to ask, you know, whatever questions they might have around their assistive technology. And then the other thing we're trying to do is to get a group um, for seniors, uh, particularly based here in the Boston area. Um, for seniors um, to, to put together a support group. So, you know, a few things. Yeah. Not as much as Reverend Ray does. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot. That's a lot, with, that's a lot with me. So, I mean, um, yeah. So, since like um, at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that this was Black History Month. So, um, yeah, just so much. I was. Um, 
I'm wondering if you guys could reflect a little bit on what Black History Month means to you, both of you. So, well, I sort of, I sort of questions that you have what the Black History Month means to to us now, and 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 you know, and I'm glad, I, I, you know, I hope y'all not sorry that y'all chose me to do this. Uh, Black History Month to me just um, just make me understand that white folks recognize that black people have contributed to this United States, that on the back of our uh, ancestors, that they of free labor, our talents and our skills help make this country great. And, and the white people that have families that's wealthy, that wealth came from black people on, on their on the on the on, on the free labor of them because of any business that you have, you know the biggest cost is labor. So when you had all them black folks on them on them on them plantations doing all this work, that's how this this country became great. And and black people always come up with ways to make things easier. So when we was out when our, when our ancestors was out there working on them fields and stuff, they came up with ways to do things to make it better. But because they was not allowed to read and write and they couldn't go and and, and get a pat a pat a pat a pattern for um for the things that they did, they, they so there's no, you know, so they so those families uh, is not wealthy. Those those black families uh, it's not in the in the in the history books to say that uh, you know no people like uh, you know like uh, Carver that uh, did the peanuts and had over three hundred different uh, products come out of that and and all so you know his family didn't wealthy but the white family became wealthy so for me and I teach uh, uh, black young men and stuff that's ashamed of being black that, hey, no, you don't have to be ashamed of being black. You don't have to be, you know, feel like uh, whatever you're getting is a handout. Your uh, forefathers and ancestors helped build this country. You have just as much right as anyone else because, you know, because there's a lot of young people in the black community feel that, you know, they are ashamed that they didn't do anything because all they ever see is slavery, uh, you know, and also for me, the Black History Month just give me a more more of a chance to just uh, recognize and work with Black kids and let them know, yeah, we only got one month. But like I tell them, Black history for us is not one month. It's every week. It's every day that we should celebrate a Black history. And yes, uh, they gave us <laughs> they gave us the shortest month of the year. And some people say, here, God, they shortchanged the black people again. But a deacon friend of mine said, Reverend Ray, no, we don't look at it like that. The way we look at it is it don't take us as long to get things done. So for, for me, <laughs> so, so for me, that's uh, when I see black history, you know, it's just that, you know, the white folks are decided to recognize that we have uh, done something in the United States, but it goes beyond that. For me, so I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on that. So go ahead, Cheryl. <laughs> In thinking about Black History Month, I wanted to, you know my family came from the Caribbean, so um, this sort of initially wasn't part of our recognition. Um, but I mean, I've we've lived here for like forty something years now, um, and so 
over the years, um, Black History Month has been a way um, of me and my family and friends learning absolutely more about the contributions of Black Americans to the to the United States. Um, it's been a way of, um, as Reverend Ray said, using it to really teach all people. Um, I've I've used it as you know in when I was in college, when I was in uh, working in in uh, agent, state agencies, as a way to bring that message to um, you know folks that, as as Reverend Ray said, you know black. Americans have always made contributions to the United States. And the fact that this information isn't written down in history books is, is a real, I mean, one, it's, I think it's, it's been a deliberate effort to, to sort of keep blacks in their quote unquote place, right? So, cause if, if you insist that you are not part of, and you are all, that you've always been an outsider and you get us to believe it, my gosh, you've got us, right? And um, the, the thing that I've always found impressive is that even though that might have been some sort of decision to do that, um, the fact that Black History Month was started and by an African-American man, Carter Woodson, and that it was building on already existing sort of groups that African-Americans had set up all across the United States. So um, there used to be sort of what were called uh, Negro history clubs um, all across the United States. There used to be uh, initially like a week-long celebration sort of based around the birthdays of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. And Carter Woodson basically said, Let's build on that. Let's let's make it a month. And so for since the 1920s until 1976, this uh, Black History Month was being celebrated within probably the black black communities across the United States. And it wasn't until 1976 that it was recognized as a national sort of um, celebration. Um, so. It means that the, the month is meaningful to me because it reminds me of perseverance. It reminds me of people sort of taking charge of their life and insisting that they have the right to be who they are and they have the right to, to, to be Americans in that, you know, nobody can really deny that, 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 that deny them that right. So. And, Cheryl, just to follow up, and I'll rephrase the question a different way. Um, do you, and I'll ask Cheryl first and then Reverend Ray, uh, do you feel that having a dedicated month of Black History Month is still still important and still valuable today? Oh, my, absolutely. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, look, look at what's going on in the world right now. I mean, um, <clears throat> we are fighting against people who want to erase everything about black Americans. So at least there's this, there's this one window where, you know, you will have a chance to say, Hey, stop, you know, we've got to pay attention and we've got to, to, to do this. Um, so I, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, you know, it's 2022 and yet 
we're still insisting that a black person has the same humanity as a white person. You would think, you know, that we would have moved beyond that, but that isn't the case. And Black History Month really gives us a chance to, like, cause people to really focus on that. Um, and it gives people, it gives us a chance to, you know, have, I think, some conversations that we're not necessarily able to have in other, other times of the year. Even though, as Reverend Ray said, Black history is American history. And so we're not, we're not there where I think we've convinced enough Americans of that as yet. So we need Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And Reverend Ray, you touched on some of this in the, the mentoring work that you do. Uh, but I'll, I'll still pose the same question to you. Do you feel that a dedicated month for, for recognizing Black history is still important and significant today? Yeah, I do think it's still uh, significant because it just gets on the top of your mind, you know, because people are living day to day, just, you know, they caught up in trying to make a dollar, trying to pay the bills and stuff like that. And it just give us pause, and if you know, regardless that McDonald's is you know doing it, and you know that they that's a social justice thing, and a couple of other organizations do it just for that one month and everything to be social justice sort of. But no, I, I think it is important, and um, and it just raised the consciousness and, and awareness. And one of the, I, and I teach a, a a course called the Four Gospels. And uh, and most people think that's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's not. It is Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, uh, Marcus Garvey, and Mandela. And I teach, and I call them the four Gospels, and I teach young Black men about their aspects of what those four Black men contribute to us in the different aspects of of uh, be self-reliant, so, you know, uh, uh, being able to uh, be articulate, uh, uh, the education uh, component, because education is so important because, uh, you know, during slavery, one of the things that the slaves understood, I mean, that the masters understood, do not teach these people how to read and write. You're going to have problems. And I don't know if you are familiar with Willie Lynch, but Willie Lynch was a white man that went to the slave owners and say, hey, that I can tell you how to keep these slaves, these people in slavery for at least 50 to 100 years. He said, I'll tell you what you do. What you do is separate the father from the family, okay? And you separate the father from the family, so therefore the father won't have any uh, emotional involvement with the children and his wife. So he'll never worry about protecting them or anything like that. And the slave master can have his way with them. Okay. So that is, you know, so that's one of the ways he's saying. Now, another way is that you put the light skinned black people in the house and you have the dark skinned black people work in the field. And that way that you'll have this always this, uh, 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 you know, problem between the light skinned and dark skinned people. And unfortunately, that still holds the day. And then they say, so, so that's why in a lot of companies, you'll see light-skinned people. And they say, and the other thing that's nice hair, you, you, you make a big deal of the light-skinned people and the black people that have good hair. And you make sure that the, the black people that have the kinky hair, uh, you degrade them. All right. Now, today, 
unfortunately, Willie, Willie Lynch did, he did more than his job because 300, 400 years later, we still got uh, people calling each other black. Um, black men want to, to marry, want to marry light-skinned women, and when white people are comfortable with light-skinned people, and you know, and still like in all these organizations, I, I, I would bet you if you did a survey, most of the, the the top positions, if they allow black people to to be in them, they are they are women. They are not men because white men is threatened by black men. And that's the biggest problem going on today. White men think that, that they're being replaced by black men and all of this new you know, stuff going on. So it's very important that we still have this, this month, uh, you know, to, to make people aware of the Willie Lynch's and those people that still having uh, some of these practices today. They're doing it a different way. It's not, it's not as overt and blatant like it used to be but they're still doing it. Um, Cheryl, does the Multicultural Affairs Committee for ACB have any special events planned here in uh, Black History Month? Um, well, we, we do. And I would say we started probably with the MLK event that we had in January. Um, and then we had the town hall. Uh, we had another session focusing on sort of um, the um, contributions of African-American members within ACB, looking at the past, sort of the present and the future. Um, we have a partnership actually with uh, Ray's, Ray's group coming up on Saturday, and we're going to be doing a Black History Trivia led with uh, Sandra Sermons and Mary Heroyan. And we're also doing another event, the uh, Say His Name, Five Days for George Floyd. We're going to be working with Anthony Corona. And um, that's also on Saturday, um, look, you know, holding another sort of listening session, inviting people to come and talk there. Um, and then our last activity, sort of formal activity for the month will be on the 21st. It's a program we're doing in conjunction with Lua, and that is we've invited um, Jason Broughton, who is the new head of the um, of NLS, and he is the first African American to be appointed to that role to come and talk with us about you know a little bit of getting to know him. It's going to be in, we're hoping a, an informal chat, a little bit of getting to know him and sort of hearing his vision for NLS. Um, so that's, that's what we've got. Um, we've got planned for this month. Awesome. And I just want to go and um, jump on the fact that you mentioned DEI and A town hall with Dan Spoon. Um, Swatha, what does DEI and A stand for? Diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility. Yeah, or after, 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 after thought. So. Some, sometimes it does feel like the A is uh, an afterthought. <laughs> yes, uh, accessibility. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, Reverend Ray, have you encountered that as well when having uh, conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion where accessibility or disability fits into the conversation? 
all the time, especially in um, my role as um, the uh, 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 a services and working with persons with disability. I mean, it's not a day I don't get a call or, you know, that about accessibility that we just seem to forget that. And I have to often remind uh, governments and local governments and all that. Hey, you know, you all talk about all this wonderful thing that we part of the fabric of this and that. No, but they all forget to mention disability. And then when they mention disability, it's like a, a, a add on, you know. And so I always have to point that out and we have to be uh, conscious, you know, of that. But also, you know, like you point the finger, three fingers are pointing back at you. We have to be, and I, and I appreciate American Council for the Blind and, and, and all they do, because we have to also be responsible and we have to be advocates. By the time we step out the door of our home, we are a advocate. At least we should be an advocate for, um, for the blind, because, um, you know, people might only see you, see that one blind person. And so they're going to base their um, opinion on blind people on how that person acts. So you have to be well-groomed. And I always get on blind people about looking well-groomed. Like they always get on me and say, well, Ray, Reverend Ray, every time I see you, you have a suit on. You know, I wear cowboy boots. I have a suit. I have, you have a suit on. You always looking dressed up. Why? Because they expect people with disability to look bad. They don't expect us to look good all the time. So when I step out the door, I always feel that I'm representing people with disability. Because when they see see us and we got food all on our shirt and, and, and all and how we conduct ourselves, that reflects on all the blind community. And it's already bad enough that they have the impression they have that we can't, you know, that we can't uh do anything. So so, so, so for me, yeah, yeah, we always, but, it, but the point is, if you do not look well-groomed, if you do not look uh, successful, you might not have a dime in your pocket, but still, if you don't look successful, people are not going to pay any attention to you when you speak up and advocate for yourself. So appearance is everything, you know, uh, that's unfortunately just the way the world is. Appearance is everything. And, uh, you, you know, you might see a nice cake or pine and look great. It might not taste like nothing, but the point is people are going to buy it because it looks good. And appearance is everything in this world. Now, and even getting more so. As they say, a picture worth a thousand words. Uh, unfortunately, that is true. So if blind people do not take care of themselves, you know, I mean, I, you know, blind women, or we pay a lot of attention. But for black women, black women is totally different from white women when it comes to how they take care of their hair, what's important to us. Like even now, we're getting to where we're starting to describe ourselves when we're on video. Well, for black women, it's different when they describe their self and how they dress than how a white woman uh, describe herself and how she dressed. So, you know, so, so unfortunately, that's just the way life is. So, yes, uh, accessibility have to be thrown out there every chance you get. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, Cheryl, um, what were your key takeaways or key impressions from the town hall that you did uh, a week ago? Oh, um, so I would probably list about, I mean, there were several, but the three that sort of come to mind are um, there seems to be a deep hunger for mentorship 
Um, a lot of people talked about the importance of that. Um, there were, people also talked about um, sort of a need for conversations, uh, opportunities to be able to have like really open and inclusive conversations that allowed all different points of views to be heard. Um, and then I think there was a, a other thing people said, which is, all right, you know, we do a lot of talking. Let's see some action now. <laughs> um, so, so those those are sort of the three um, ideas I think that that jumped out at me. Um, that that I you know I will talk with Dan and other folks about, and we will. Um, you know, figure out sort of next steps. And Cheryl, uh, speaking of action, I know both of you are active advocates, not only for the Black and African American communities, but also the disabled and visually impaired communities, and certainly um, for issues at the intersection of disability and accessibility. Um, if we could just take a moment to talk about some of those issues. So Cheryl, earlier, um, before the podcast started, you were mentioning the, the transportation work that you're doing in Massachusetts. Uh, could you share a little bit about that and why it's so important, not only for people with disabilities, but equitable access to transportation for people with color, people of color as well? So I don't want to put out a false uh, impression that I'm leading anything. I'm part of a committee. <laughs> <laughs> and the committee is working on these things. Um, <clears throat> so one of our um, sort of persistent challenges um, that, we, you know, I think people with disabilities talk about a lot is just public transportation and especially the paratransit um, transportation, which mm -hmm. I think on some level, you know, I could say I personally appreciate um, because uh, when I was much younger, I, I was, you know, okay, yes, I can jump on the bus. And so I've got to walk two miles to get to wherever I'm going from there. No problem. Um, now that I'm a little older, I'm not so sure I'm willing to do that two-mile walk anymore. Um, so I appreciate the fact that paratransit will take me from door to door. Um, and um, But it's so uneven. Um, and, and, I mean, it's it's just... It's it's uneven in the sort of quality of service that's provided, and here in Massachusetts, it's uneven in the even the sort of existence and the provision of services. So I live in Boston, we're a city. You know, we have access all the time. We even have um, a, a a program now where you don't need to use the paratransit. You know, you don't have to call them up because now they have contracts with Lyft and Uber. So you can use a Lyft or Uber and it will take you sort of the exact places where the paratransit would go. Um, but that's not available to everybody across the state. So one of the challenges is like, how do we get the other sort of regional um, transportation authorities to, to, to make that provision available? Um, so that's definitely one issue. And, and I, I think uh, another issue that that we've been working on is voting. Um, 
if the pandemic showed us one thing is how uneven access to voting um, is and, and has been for a while. Um, as a lot, you know, a lot of people know, um, at least here again in Massachusetts, we've had the um, Automark machine, which we've used. And it was so interesting because right before the pandemic, and we were just about to put out sort of a policy paper to our Secretary of State's office um, suggesting that we really needed to start looking at those machines because, you know, they'd been around, I don't know what, 12, many, many years, and they were not working as well as they used to. Um, and then the pandemic happened. So now it's, you know, you can't go physically to the polls anymore. What are the options? Um, and, and, you know, thankfully, not just Massachusetts, but ACB sort of got involved in that issue. And, you know, we were able to come up with some solutions. Yes. And, and Ray, Reverend Ray, that's pretty similar to some of the advocacy work that you're leading uh, with the, the D.C. Council of the Blind um, and your various advocacy efforts here in the greater D.C. area, Correct. Yeah, correct. And and I thank the National uh, ACB American Council of the Blind and your office for assisting us uh, with, uh, uh, with with uh, accessible voting. And um, and and so we are uh, with an organization, a lawyers group, and uh, and we're trying to get that. Even though, like just like the cutaway uh, curbside, that's going to help everybody. You know, it's going to it's going to have everyone to make it easier for uh, not only the person with disability, but able-bodied persons to also uh, be able to vote, make it accessible. So, yeah, we're 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 working with that. You'll hear more about it as we um, beat on our city council people to uh, do what they need to do to make that make that happen. But also, we had trouble, as Cheryl said, with the taxi cab. Uh, drivers, and we even had our uh, executive person, Bridges, uh, a few years ago uh, with a uh, camera, news camera crew, stand out and saw how the taxi cabs were passing by with his guide dog. As I mentioned earlier, I'm the uh, president of CAGDU, Capital Earlier Guide Dog Users, Inc., here in uh, D.C., and we represent, uh, in this uh, in D.C. area, we represent over 100 persons with guide dogs that live in uh, Prince George County, Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and Montgomery County, and, and, uh, and in parts of Southern Maryland. And that's one of the problems we even have still with Uber and with Lyft that uh, outside the regular cab driver that they don't want to uh, transport out our, our guide dogs with us. So that's a constant, constant fight. Uh, so, you know, so that's where we are with that. But but as you know, Clark, and uh, that all, everything, even politics is local, local, local. And so one of the things, as I say, rebranding of the D.C. Council is to have uh, the organizations at this point, you know, the organizations can't be fighting against each other, who ACB, who NFB, and I tell Black people, we can't get caught up in uh, who's ACB, who's NFB, and all that stuff. Uh, we have to work on a local level and make things uh, accessible for all blind people. And we got to, you know, work together uh, on a local level. Now, nationally, we can have some differences in terms of resolutions and stuff. Okay, that's fine. But on the local level, 
uh, we have to be able to serve uh, blind people and people with disability. And at the end of the day, uh, what, what our question should Meeting be to us is, uh, you know, because of our Poppy, organization, are we making uh, blind people and visually impaired people lives better? And, and, you know, and it don't have to be ACB wrote to check, NFB started the program. Uh, and I also, in terms of this blackness, and stuff, uh, you know, these organizations, I don't give all this history, but, you know, these organizations used to be a one organization. I mean, then the ACB, bless their heart, you know, this black history, they are opening up the door. James Brown, a, a singer, said, uh, you know, don't give me nothing. Open up the door. I get it myself. And, all, and I add to that is just don't keep the door locked. You know, just don't keep the yeah. door locked. And ACB, even though it has over 10,000 members, uh, you know, 49 uh, uh, presidents and stuff like that, you, you only have like, you know, three black female presidents and one one black male president of affiliate. And NFB is not that much better. They have 700 chapters. They have 50 uh, uh, state affiliates, they only have, and on their board is 17 board members, and they only have four black people. So, uh, you know, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, in this day and age, so Black History Month is very important to keep at the mind and be able to have these kind of conversations. And I appreciate, uh, this podcast and being part, uh, part of this, uh, to, to express some desire, some of the uh, opinions. And thank you for that, Reverend Ray. And as we reach the end of the, the podcast here, um, you mentioned opening the door and keeping the door open. I think one of the ways that I'm encouraged that we're doing that at ACB is with our, our scholarship programs, our J.P. Morgan Chase Leadership Fellows, as well as the... Dermot uh, K. McDaniel. Yep, yep, the Dermot K. McDaniel um, which I'm, which I'm applying for. I'm putting in the plug in, which I'm applying. Good. For. <laughs> I'm putting in a plug in. Yeah, I'm put, I'm applying so, for that. Yeah. So uh, Cheryl, with the DKM first timers, the leadership fellows and the, the scholarship programs, I guess, is, is there more that you think ACB could be doing to, to open the door for those, those future, either current members of color, future leaders of color within the organization? Well, there's always more that can be done. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm never satisfied that we've done it all because mm-hmm. we, we haven't. Um, so I can say one of the things that MCAC is contemplating is, you know, we are a board committee, so we've, we've got some limits on how many members we can have. Um, but one of the things we will add to our sort of repertoire to make sure that we're hearing from um, ACB members is that uh, at least once a quarter, we will have like an open meeting so mm. that people can come and they can talk with us and share ideas about, you know, what, what do they think ACB can be doing to better welcome and recruit and include people of African-American backgrounds, but, you know, all, all, uh, of all different ethnic and racial sort of groups. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, I think, you know, a lot of times we talk about sort of the membership component of the organization 
And I think we also need to talk about sort of the business part of the organization. I mean, one of the things ACB can certainly do is look at sort of the vendors that it's interacting with. Are those people of color? Are they women, minorities, et cetera? Um, and, you know, I know uh, in the last few years, the staff has been expanded by quite a lot considering the size of the organization. And I, I think we need to focus on making sure that our staff starts to reflect the diversity um, that, that, is, that is not only within ACB, but you know, reflective of, of our community. So there are definitely some you know, tangible steps that we can take. I think also we have to encourage current ACB members to complete that part of the uh, membership profile that asks for your gender and asks for your race. Because it's really hard to, to sort of talk about tangible progress if there isn't any data to back that up. I mean, we can certainly do, you know, focus groups and oh, other oh, sorts of things oh, looking at you know, people's sense of belonging and inclusion, those types of things. But I think we also need the hard data. So as Reverend Ray said, you know, maybe this year we know that we've got four um, affiliate uh, presidents who are African-American or people of color. And can we, can we track that? Can we say, you know, like by uh, in two years, we want that number to be quadrupled or something like that. So I think there are things that, that we can absolutely still do. Yep, absolutely. Um, thanks to you both for coming to the podcast, talking about the important issues here. Um, yeah, so that is a wrap for today. Right. Well, and as always, Clark, you want to take it new and do honors? Uh, I do, but I also want to thank our guests, Cheryl and Reverend Ray. Thank you for um, your perspective. Um, in your beliefs and reminding us that along with accessibility, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a journey and one that we all need to be intentional about, right? It's not going to happen on accident. Mm -hmm. Much like we focus on disability inclusion and accessibility, we need to focus on inclusion for, for everyone. So thank you both for your time here today. And we hope that you and all of our listeners are able to join us at the DC Leadership Conference, March 12th to 15th. Uh, registration is now open. And Swatha, we, let's all just say it together. Keep advocating. advocating. This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. ACBM wants to send along heartfelt greetings to all of its family throughout the ACB community. Having hosted two outstanding and invigorating ACB national conventions, they are committed to expanding opportunity for Americans who are blind and visually impaired. 
ACBM supports the James R. Olson Memorial Scholarship honoring one of its past members, and they continue to not let life during these challenging times slow down. ACBM invites all to their informative bi-monthly community conference calls, ranging on everything from sports and technology to gardening and loving life in the land of 10,000 lakes. They hold quarterly monthly membership meetings, monthly coffee gatherings, and monthly board meetings. To learn more about ACBM, visit their website at www acbminnesota.org or call 612-223-5543. ACBM, a supporter of the ACB Media Network.